one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. Hello, this is Mark Ratterman. Please excuse the absence of the rest of the Talking Space team. This show is a special one. Aren't they all? No, seriously, you'll understand in a moment why I'm here and they are not. This episode of Talking Space brings you a recording from August 7, 2013 at the Alachua County Library Headquarters Branch in Gainesville, Florida. The presenter is Peter Chitko from NASA Kennedy Space Center. Peter Chitko is employed by NASA as the Mechanical Division Engineering Technical Integration Manager. In 1983, he joined NASA at the Kennedy Space Center, which was launch site and preferred landing site for NASA's space shuttles. So with 30 years of experience, he has a wealth of information about both Florida history and space travel. Mr. Chitko's presentation at the Alachua County, Florida Library added the very interesting aspect of spaceflight to the theme, Viva Florida 500. Now, Viva Florida 500 is a statewide initiative to highlight the 500 years of historic people, places, and events in present-day Florida since the arrival of Juan Ponce de Leon to the land he named La Florida in 1513. While Florida's Native American heritage dates back more than 12,000 years, Spain's claim in 1513 began a new era. 2013 marks 500 years of history and diverse cultural heritage in Florida, a claim no other state in America can make. And Viva Florida 500 promotes the place where the world's cultures began to unite and transform into the great nation we know today as the United States of America. The Viva Florida 500 commemoration is ongoing throughout 2013 and includes hundreds of events statewide. The goal is to promote 500 years of Florida's history, its people, places, and cultural achievements, and this important milestone in American and Florida history. Now, my apologies for the moments you miss here with this audio-only recording. Mr. Chitko played several videos of key events from the Apollo program. Unfortunately, the acoustics of the conference room we were in made that audio on my recording difficult to understand. However, I think you'll find Mr. Chitko easy to understand, and I ask you to let your mind's eye fill in the pictures or video that you have certainly seen before. Now, Mr. Chitko will be telling us about the space race, about the Apollo program, and a little about what is ahead for NASA. During the last two minutes of this recording, you'll hear the question I ask Mr. Chitko, and I think you'll find his answer one well worth waiting for. I want to thank Mr. Peter Chitko of NASA Kennedy Space Center and the Alachua County Library for their permission to record this presentation. Several of us that were there felt this was an outstanding presentation from an extremely knowledgeable speaker. Thank you, NASA, for sharing your best with communities far and wide. And with that, Mr. Peter Chitko. Well, good afternoon, everybody. It's so very nice to be with you today. Um, 
I have had the, the privilege of working for NASA down at the Kennedy Space Center for the past 30 years, mainly working with the space shuttle. Um, and everybody knows we've stopped flying space shuttles now. Uh, we've retired the shuttles. The shuttles are now in museums across the country uh, on display. And because of that, a lot of people think NASA is um, well, that couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, and a little bit later in the presentation, we'll get into what we're presently doing and our plans for the future for, uh, for NASA. Um, I'd also like to thank uh, Miriam Elliott also for the wonderful display she put on of her father's uh, priceless uh, memorabilia. It's uh, just some, some wonderful things that she's put on display for us. So thank you, Miriam. I appreciate that very much. Um, so 500 years ago, Hans de Leon's voyage of exploration brought him to the eastern shores of, of Florida, including the area that was later to become known as Cape Canaveral. And I think it's very fitting that our Viva Florida celebrations uh, should include uh, looking back on and remembering another great voyage of exploration and discovery that was launched from those very shores. And that's the Apollo Moon program of the, uh, of the 1960s. So what I was going to do is, uh, let's talk about uh, kind of the history and the genesis of the, of the Apollo program. Um, the, the space age really began in 1957. In October of 1957, the Soviet Union launched uh, Sputnik 1, the world's first satellite. And it kind of caught our country off guard. We weren't sure that the Soviet Union didn't really understand or knew that the Soviet Union had that kind of capability. So it really caught, caught us off guard that the, the Soviet Union could do something like that. Um, well, we followed shortly thereafter in January of 1958, launching our first satellite, it's called Explorer 1. And then shortly thereafter, in the summer of 1958, we formed NASA, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, to kind of um, bring together our country's efforts in this new uh, age, in this new space age, if you will. Um, and shortly after uh, NASA was formed, we chose our first seven astronauts in uh, 1959. They were called the Mercury 7. And uh, they were uh, getting ready, uh, training for missions to fly solo into outer space. And uh, we were getting ready to send our first American into space when in April of 1961, the Soviet Union surprised us again by launching the first man in space. His name was Yuri Gagarin, and he made one orbit of the Earth in April of 1961. Well, the following month, in May of 1961, we launched the first American in space, Alan Shepard. And he rode this Redstone rocket, this uh, Mercury Redstone rocket. He was in the Mercury capsule here. Uh, and he rode the Redstone rocket on a 15-minute flight. The rocket didn't have enough thrust to get the capsule into orbit. And he just went on a ballistic trajectory up and down on a 15-minute flight. Three weeks after Alan Shepard's flight, President Kennedy got up in front of the country and said, we should, as a country, commit to going to the moon by the end of the decade, in about eight years. We had 15 minutes of spaceflight experience. We hadn't even put a man on, uh, in orbit yet. And here President Kennedy is saying, let's, let's go to the moon in eight years, in, in a little less than eight years. Um, frankly, everybody thought he was crazy. Uh, we just, like I said, we just had the 15 minutes of spaceflight experience, and now he's taking this huge leap uh, to challenge the country to, to do something like that. Um, and, and a lot of people, it's interesting, a lot of people wonder why the rocket facility down south is called the John F. Kennedy Space Center. And you just heard the reason why. He had the, the, the wisdom and the vision and really the courage to challenge this country to do something incredible like that. Um, so uh, after President Kennedy set forth this challenge, we set uh, down uh, in the Cape Canaveral uh, area to construct 
the moon port that we would need to launch these missions from. And uh, the, the space center really consists of two separate areas. Uh, one area here uh, that we call the Cape Canaveral Air Force Station. And it is from this area that we launched our early missions. We launched uh, Explorer 1, our early satellites, uh, the Mercury missions, and then the Gemini missions that we will get into later. But um, so, so this area was kind of already developed. So in order to create an, a moon port, NASA bought land and expanded the, the, uh, their facility farther north on what's called Merritt Island and to build the moon port here, which was going to be called uh, the Launch Complex 39 area. So that's, uh, this is what we, uh, after President Kennedy's speech, this is the area that we started uh, developing into this new moon port that we would need. So let's take a look at some of the facilities. Well, in order to launch a moon rocket, you would need a big building to assemble the moon rocket. And you'll need launch pads, a couple of launch pads to launch the rocket from. You'll need uh, launch platforms, a launch control center, a special roadway to take this huge rocket out to the launch pad. So that's how uh, the facility was uh, initially planned and laid out. Uh, the building uh, was going to be called the Vehicle Assembly Building. It was going to be this huge building on which we would uh, construct or, or assemble the moon rocket. There's a, a little picture of that there. The, uh, and here's the, uh, the start of the construction. Actually, construction began in 1962 of the Vehicle Assembly Building. Uh, and out of the, uh, the sand dunes and the scrubs uh, arose one of the largest buildings in the world. Uh, initially, uh, over 4,000 of these huge steel pilings were driven into bedrock to lay the foundation of the building, basically. Uh, and I'll quote a couple of facts about the Vehicle Assembly Building. Uh, they used over 98,000 tons of steel in the construction of the Vehicle Assembly Building. Um, and uh, let's see, uh, about 65,000 cubic yards of concrete. It's the largest one-story, single-story building in the world. And when it was constructed, it was the, uh, actually the largest building in volume in the world. So in addition to the Vehicle Assembly Building, we needed a launch control center, which was built right next to the Vehicle Assembly Building. We'll get some more pictures uh, here in a little bit. There's some more of the steel framework going up uh, back in, uh, this was in 1963. And we would all also need launch platforms built to, to launch this massive moon rocket. So we built three massive platforms. Here's a, a construction, this is a platform that was already completed, and we built two others uh, in series with that. Some of the facts, the launch tower was over 500 feet tall and weighed over 11 million pounds, each one of them that was constructed. There's the three launch platforms um, after they had been uh, uh, constructed. Uh, in addition, we would need a way to get the rocket from the assembly building out to the launch pad. So we built two of uh, what were called crawler transporters. Uh, the crawler transporters would pick up the rocket with the, um, with the launch tower and take it three miles out to the launch pad. Uh, and the crawlers, each crawler, well, there's two of them that we have, and each one weighs over six million pounds. So there's a picture of one of the crawler transporters and then the three launch platforms that were constructed. And also, we would need a special roadway because this whole stack would weigh somewhere in the neighborhood of 13 million pounds, and you couldn't take it over a normal roadway, so we had to build a special roadway from the uh, assembly building out to the launch pad. And the, uh, the, the, what we call the crawler way uh, is uh, 130 feet wide, uh, larger than an eight-lane freeway, 
And uh, it's about eight feet deep of different various fills with a layer of, of river rock on top so the uh, crawler can crawl over it uh, with less friction. Now here is uh, the area where we're going to build the launch pads out of. Uh, initially, as construction began, and you'll see the launch pads taking shape here. Uh, in about two years' time, uh, we, uh, we built two pads. The pads uh, took about 120,000 uh, cubic yards of concrete and about 8,000 tons of steel in each launch pad. And there's uh, the launch pads. Actually, there's two. This is pad A and pad B in the background there were completed. And, and in, a, in a matter of uh, three years, this launch, this new moon port came into being. The assembly building, the launch control center, the three mobile launch towers, the crawler way, and then the two launch pads uh, in addition. Here's a, here's a, uh, a shot showing the, the, the launch pad uh, with the vehicle assembly building in the background some three miles down the road and a special crawler way that was built to support that immense weight of the moon rocket. And one more shot just showing you, this is called the, once again the Launch Complex 39 area or this new moon port area that we constructed uh, in a very short period of time in order to support President Kennedy's moon program. Now while all this was going on, all this was going on up here on Merritt Island, uh, we were also continuing to launch men into space as a part of the Mercury program down here off of the Cape Canaveral Air Force Station off of Complex 14. And we launched John Glenn uh, in 1962, in February of 1962, he became the first American to orbit the Earth. He rode what was called an Atlas rocket. He rode an Atlas rocket, and the Atlas rocket had enough thrust to get him into orbit. And a lot of times, uh, whenever I talk to folks, a lot of people wonder, you know, how you get something into orbit. And we're just going to do a little demonstration with the ball. Could, could you catch the ball for me, please? Could you come out and just catch the ball? I'm just going to throw the ball. And let's just let it hit the ground. I'm not going to put a lot of speed into it, okay? And we'll just see where it lands. I'm not going to put a lot of speed into it. And it landed right about there. So could you, could you throw it back to me? That'd be great. Thank you. Okay, you can back up, son. Can you back up? Okay. Now I'm going to throw it a little faster. And we're going to see what happens back up score. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to throw a little faster and see what happens. So if I throw it, if I throw it faster, faster than I thought I could, um, thank you, thanks, thanks. Now, if, as I threw it faster, what happened? What happened to it? It went farther before what? It went farther before gravity pulled it down. Right, right, exactly. Well, if I could throw this ball at 17,500 miles an hour, Guess what's going to happen? In 90 minutes, I better duck my head because it's going to be going fast enough to stay in orbit, to balance the pull of gravity. Um, so that's all getting into outer space is. I know there's a, there's a whole science called orbital mechanics, but really what it comes down to is throwing something fast enough, which is what we do with rockets, so, to, so it's going fast enough to balance the pull of gravity, trying to pull it back down to Earth. So that's all this science of orbit, getting something into orbit is all about. It's getting something going fast enough, throwing it fast enough to balance the pull of gravity. And the Atlas rocket that we had uh, had enough thrust to throw the capsule in John Glenn at 17,500 miles an hour, which is about five miles a second, to get him into orbit. Um, and we continued on with the Mercury program. Uh, we had uh, 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 
let's see, uh, Scott Carpenter, Wally Schraw, and then Gordon Cooper followed uh, flying the Mercury capsule on the Atlas in uh, uh, different Mercury flights. Uh, then we transitioned in, in 1965 to the, what was called the Gemini program. The Gemini program, we sent in two men into space uh, in, the, uh, in the Gemini capsule. They rode a Titan rocket, and we had two men in the Gemini capsule. A lot of times the Gemini program is the forgotten program, but it was very essential. It was an essential stepping stone for us to get to the moon because it allowed us to practice all the techniques uh, that we bless you, that we would need to get to the moon. One of the things the Gemini program allowed us to practice was uh, a term called extravehicular activity. It's basically getting out of the capsule and, and, and doing work. Because obviously when we went to the moon, we wanted to get out and explore. So, um, during the Gemini program, this is a picture of Ed White, who became the first American to walk in space. So the Gemini program allowed us to practice getting out of the capsule and, and doing work, which was what we would do on the moon. A uh, Gemini program also allowed us to practice something called rendezvous and docking. Rendezvous meaning uh, meeting the two spaceships meeting up in outer space, and then docking means bringing them together. So it was a technique that we would need to get to the moon, this rendezvous and docking. Um, we also practiced uh, long-duration uh, flights. You've got to remember, this is very early in the space program, and we weren't sure of, of the effects of weightlessness on the human body. We had very, uh, very little experience with that uh, uh, with our uh, astronauts. So we sent a Gemini mission um, uh, for a duration of two weeks in space so we could study the effects of weightlessness on the, on the human body. And if you can imagine being stuck uh, in a Gemini capsule with uh, your best friend for two weeks, it's about the size of a Volkswagen. So uh, you really got to know each other uh, uh, when you were on that two-week mission. Um, so anyway, uh, we, the Gemini program was very successful, had 10 very successful flights, and that ended in uh, November of 1966. Then, in January of 1967, we were getting ready to launch the Apollo, the first Apollo mission, the first three-man capsule, okay, the, the, the capsule that would take us to the moon. And the astronauts uh, who were going to fly that mission were Gus Grissom, Ed White, who made our first uh, walk in space, and Roger Chaffee, who hadn't who was a space rookie, hadn't yet been in space yet. Well, they were on the launch pad in their capsule uh, conducting a practice countdown or rehearsal for their countdown about three weeks before launch, and a fire broke out inside the capsule, and unfortunately, uh, the astronauts lost their lives uh, as, as a result of the fire. Um, the fire set the program back about a year and a half. There were a lot of people thinking after the fire that we would, couldn't meet President Kennedy's goal of, of getting to the moon by the end of the decade. Up very quickly about the fire. The astronauts were in the capsule. The capsule um, for the Apollo 1 mission was filled with pure oxygen. Uh, pure oxygen that was pumped up to about 16 pounds per square inch. Um, here on Earth, uh, we breathe uh, air and nitrogen about 14.7 pounds per square inch. They were inside the capsule with pure oxygen pumped up even greater than atmospheric pressure. Now, if you can imagine, if we could fill this room with pure oxygen, pump it up to 16 pounds per square inch, any little spark, anything like that, would just set off the, the room like a, like a huge explosion, like a bomb, actually. Uh, and that's what happened inside the capsule. There was some kind of electrical short circuit or spark uh, that uh, set the oxygen off. And the, uh, the fire, actually, they didn't perish because of the fire. They perished because of the noxious fumes. 
Uh, they were actually asphyxiated. And, and the, uh, the tragedy was they, they had a hatch, and they were trying to open the hatch. But on a good day, it took them about 90 seconds to open the hatch. Uh, and unfortunately, they were overcome before they could open the hatch. Uh, we made a lot of changes to the Apollo capsule as a result of the fire. One of the biggest changes was we made a hatch that we could open in four seconds. That could be opened very, very quick. Because a lot of people said if they had a quick opening hatch during the fire, they, could, they would have gotten out of alive because their space, their suits protected them basically from a lot of the initial fire and they could have gotten out of the, the capsule. So one of the biggest changes we made was, was a quick opening hatch that the astronauts could open up in, uh, in about four seconds. So as we were recovering from the fire, um, we were also, uh, during all this time, and there's uh, uh, just a picture of the capsule inside after the, uh, after the tragedy, uh, we were also developing the moon rocket that would, we would need to take us to the moon. And just to show you, um, as we uh, as look on the chart here, this, the rocket uh, right here on the far right, remember Alan Shepard, the first American in space? That was the Mercury Redstone that he rode. Here is the Mercury Atlas that John Glenn rode into space. Here's the Gemini Titan, the two-man rocket. And then here was the, the three-man Apollo Saturn V moon rocket. So you can see in a very short span of years how the rocket technology grew immensely, uh, just in a very short period of time. So uh, we had developed the, the, the Saturn V, the largest and most powerful rocket ever built. Uh, there it is on the transporter. Uh, there it is, uh, again, over 36 stories tall, and to this day is still the largest and most powerful rocket uh, ever flown. And there's a picture of astronauts uh, inside the Apollo capsule, uh, still kind of uh, very cramped space, uh, elbow to elbow, shall we say. Um, so, after the fire, uh, and like I said, we were shut down for about a year and a half recovering from the fire, we had, uh, we launched the first Apollo, manned Apollo missions, Apollo 7. And uh, the astronauts um, spent 11 days uh, in Earth orbit checking out the new capsule. Then uh, in December of 1968, we sent an Apollo capsule on the Apollo 8 mission to orbit the moon. So three astronauts, Frank Borman, Jim Lovell, and, and Bill Anders, orbited uh, in the uh, uh, Apollo capsule, made 10 orbits of the moon in December of 1968. Uh, then we, uh, we followed with Apollo 9, which checked out the lunar module, or the landing module in Earth orbit. Then we sent Apollo 10 in May of 1969 to lunar orbit to check out both the command module and the, the, the landing module, the lunar module, in lunar orbit. Then, in July of 1969, we were finally ready to attempt to send men to make the first landing on the moon. And the crew of Apollo 11 uh, consisted of Neil Armstrong, who was going to be the commander, Michael Collins, who was the command module pilot, and Buzz Aldrin, who was going to be the lunar module pilot. And they were uh, getting ready to launch into July of 1969. And uh, right now, we are going to relive some of those moments of the Apollo 11 mission.
little bit more, but just want to tell you that the Saturn V was so big, Saturn V came in three separate stages. The first stage had five huge engines on it, and those engines together burned the fuel at the rate of 3,000 gallons per second. So as you're watching this, every second that goes by, uh, the, the engines are consuming uh, 3,000 gallons of fuel uh, each second that goes by. point out something, uh, you, and you see this on every launch. Um, notice how the flames, what happens as the rocket goes higher and higher? What happens to the flames? You see what, what's going on with the flames? They kind of fan out like that? Yes, yeah. Well, as the, as the rocket first takes off, it's closer to the ground, and the air pressure is literally holding the flame in a nice line. But as you go higher and higher, what happens to the air pressure? Less and less, right? So there's less air pressure to kind of push it into a nice column. That's why every rocket launch you see is the, as the rocket gets higher and higher and higher and the air pressure gets less and less. So this huge fan of flame coming out. It's really a, a really cool uh, phenomenon that you see every, every rocket launch there. So we'll watch staging here. Uh, we'll watch the first stage cut off. The first stage burned for about two and a half minutes. Ran out of fuel. 500,000 gallons gone in two and a half minutes. module, this silver cylindrical structure has all the oxygen and water, all the life support for the capsule. That's called the service module. And so, so the command service module was separated. They turned the command module around, docked with the top of the lunar module, and pulled the lunar module out of the third stage. And I'll show you kind of what, how that works. So in the top of the lunar module was a docking port top of the lunar module, and the command module had a, had a, a docking probe in it that joined with the, 
lunar module, it was a lot easier in space. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, right. So, so um, and this is the this is the configuration that went to the moon. And a tunnel was formed between the command module and the lunar module. And that's how the astronauts got back and forth between the two spacecraft. Okay. So they were. I took them three days to journey from the Earth to the Moon. And one of the one of the neat things they did. Um, obviously, in space, the sun is shining down, and it get very hot on one side and very cold on the other side. That's in shadow. So on the on their way to the Moon, they would rotate the spacecraft once an hour. It was in a very slow rotation. And they call that the barbecue mode. It was like uh, everybody's been to Publix and sees the chickens on the rotisserie in the back. Well, it was to evenly heat the spacecraft on the way to the moon so one side wouldn't get too hot and one side wouldn't get too cold. So they put in this very slow rotation. Now, once they, once, after three days, once they got to the moon, they fired this big engine on the back of the service module to slow the spacecraft down to be captured by lunar gravity and they, uh, they achieved orbit around the moon. Once they did that, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin crawled through the tunnel to the, um, the lunar module, the landing craft that was called Eagle, and Michael Collins uh, remained in er uh, lunar orbit about 60 miles high in the command module, which was called Columbia. And they separated the two spacecraft, and Michael Collins stayed in the command ship, Columbia, about 60 miles high, while Neil Armstrong, and Buzz Aldrin lit this lit this engine on the descent stage of the of the uh, lunar module to break them out of lunar uh, lunar orbit to a landing a soft landing on the moon. Now, if you can see in the front here, there's two triangular windows. I don't know if you can see in the front here, and that's where Neil Armstrong was on, on the left side, Buzz Aldrin on the right side, looking out these triangular windows uh, as they were making a landing. And there was a camera over Buzz Aldrin's shoulder looking out this triangular window too. So Neil and Buzz made a successful landing on the moon. They only had about 15 seconds of fuel remaining. They were running short on fuel, and uh, earlier in the landing approach, uh, they, uh, they were having computer problems as well. They were getting these computer alarms. So uh, they were, you know, looking back, uh, they were very lucky that they didn't have to abort the first, uh, the first landing attempt. Uh, they made a successful landing. Now, uh, it's time for uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin to uh, become the first uh, men to walk on the moon. The uh, lunar module had a hatch right here. If you see this square piece right here, that was a hatch uh, that they opened, and uh, Neil Armstrong came down this ladder at the front uh, landing gear leg of the lunar module and was getting ready to become the first man to walk on the moon. Um, when he got to the very top, when he first opened the hatch and got to the top of, uh, of the ladder, uh, he pulled on a lanyard, and a, this lanyard opened a compartment on the side of the lunar module, and there was a TV camera there uh, uh, that pointed to the lower part of the lander, uh, and that TV camera uh, enabled everyone on Earth at that moment to watch Neil Armstrong as he became the, uh, the first man to walk on the moon. Neil Armstrong came down these nine uh, steps to the ladder here and was standing in this foot pad. And he was about to become the first man on the moon. And he knew what he, uh, the words he said or the words he spoke uh, as he made that first step were going to be recorded in history books for, for all time. Um, and so for him to step on the moon, he just had to take us a little step backwards, a small step back off of this, this footpath. So he came up with this wonderful, he just basically was saying, I'm just a man taking a small step. 
But by me doing that, mankind is taking a giant leap forward. That's why I came up with this wonderful expression. That's one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. I thought it was a wonderful expression of, of this very simple act that he was doing, but, you know, this, this greater implication for, for all of mankind. And I always wonder myself, the first person who goes to Mars and steps on Mars is going to have to uh, really come up with something to outdo what, what Neil Armstrong uh, came up with that day. Yeah, so it was a wonderful, wonderful uh, phrase that, uh, that he came up with. Um, now, uh, Neil was on the surface for about oh, 10 minutes or so, and then Buzz Aldrin came down to join him, and they uh, set up experiments, and they were on the surface for about uh, two and a half hours. Um, and let's talk about the moon, uh, and let's talk about gravity on the moon. Um, gravity on the moon is only one-sixth that of Earth, and that is because, let's think about this, is the moon bigger or smaller than Earth? compared to the Earth. But it's smaller, right. So the pull of gravity on your body is a lot smaller, only one-sixth. Well, uh, an astronaut on Earth in a spacesuit weighs over 300 pounds. But on the Moon, he only weighs about 55 pounds because the lunar, or the gravity of, of, of the Moon is pulling on his body with a lot less force. So that's why you see them hopping around with, with ease in that uh, on the Moon. In fact, they said it was a lot easier working on the Moon than on the Earth because, uh, because of the, uh, the, the easier gravity on, on the Moon. Uh, then then they, they had to deal with their simulations when they did uh, practice their spacewalks on, uh, uh, on Earth here. They were on the Moon for about uh, two and a half hours. Uh, and uh, let's talk about the Forgotten Man. Uh, while this is going on, Michael Collins is still in orbit around, around the moon. And he's circling the moon every, uh, every two hours in, in an orbit. And there's something very interesting that happens to Michael Collins for about 50 minutes of that, of that orbit. Every time he goes behind the moon, something very interesting happens. He is absolutely cut off from all communication. Uh, his antenna radio signals can't get through because the moon is blocking, the far side of the moon is blocking his signals. So Neil and Buzz are on the, on the near side of the moon. They can talk to each other and they can talk to the Earth. For 45 minutes or so of, of these orbits that Michael Collins is in, he is literally cut off from all of humanity and literally on his own in the universe. Uh, he knew this wasn't a secret, you know, obviously he knew this was going to happen. Uh, and he said he wasn't scared. It was a, a kind of an exhilarating feeling of just, but it, it was, it was, he was keenly aware that he was truly on his own for, for those times, those 45 minutes, of, you know, every orbit that he was in. So a uh, very, very unique uh, uh, aspect of, of the Apollo moon missions is that the command module pilot was literally cut off from all of humanity uh, it, it, for uh, 45 minutes of every orbit that he made around the, uh, around the moon. Well, now Neil and Buzz completed their, their moonwalk, they crawled up the ladder, closed the hatch, and this is the only way home. Michael Collins has the command module, it's 60 miles high in lunar orbit. This is the only way home. So somehow, Neil and, Neil and Buzz needs to get up and rendezvous and dock with uh, Michael Collins in the command module. Well, the lunar module, Eagle, was designed in two separate stages or two separate pieces. One, called the uh, descent stage, had the rocket engine and, the, and the, the fuel needed to land on the moon. And the ascent stage, where the crew basically lived, had its own engine on it, okay? Now, everybody look, how many, how many engines does this rocket have on it? One, yes. And 
This one engine, if it did not work to lift Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin off the moon and back into orbit to meet up with Michael Collins, if this rocket engine did not work, uh, to this day, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin would still be on the moon. There was, there was no way for Michael Collins to come down and rescue his friends. That one engine had to work or else Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin were going to be left to die on the moon. In fact, it was so worrisome that President Nixon, at the time, had a speech that was already written and in his desk, ready to give to the American people in case that uh, you know, horrible situation happened. And, and Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin were going to have to be left to die on the moon. Fortunately, it was a speech that was never given, but he had it written just in case. Um, so everybody, needless to say, held their breath the next day as the ascent stage lifted Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin off the moon to rendezvous and dock. Remember the Gemini program? We talked about rendezvousing and docking. Well, this is why we practiced it, so we knew we could uh, link up again uh, in lunar orbit. And then once they linked up, they transferred through the, uh, the tunnel, the moon rocks and experiments, back to the command ship. They jettisoned the ascent stage, and then they relit the uh, service module engine to blast them out of lunar orbit back on the three-day journey back to Earth. And they went into the barbecue mode again. They rotated the spacecraft once an hour to evenly heat the spacecraft as they did this. Let's talk about the moon. Does the moon have any um, tides or winds or that, that sort of thing? No, no, no. So there's no erosion on the moon. There's no weather on the moon. So those footprints that, thank you, those footprints that Neil Armstrong and, and Buzz Aldrin made there um, will be there forever. There is no erosion on the moon. What happens when you go to the beach and, and write your name in the sand? What happens over time? In fact, I'll tell you a little story about the last man to walk on the moon. His name was Eugene Cernan, and he was the commander of the Apollo 17 mission um, in December of 1972. He had a single daughter, Tracy, and he wanted to do something very special for his daughter. Dad was going to the moon. So what could Dad do to, uh, you know, uh, for, for his daughter? Well, he knew he couldn't bring her back to the moon rock. That wouldn't be ethical, that sort of thing. So right before he went up the ladder for the last time, he just kind of bent down in the, in the lunar soil and traced her initials out in the moon, Tracy Lynn Cernan took back, uh, uh, took a picture with his camera, and when he got back to Earth, his gift to his daughter was for her initials carved on the moon. And what's so special about that? I'll stay there. will stay there forever. Yeah, so I thought it was a great gift, uh, a nice little gesture that, uh, that uh, Gene Cernan made to his, his daughter, a uh, nice little gift. So, um, let's see here. Back to the... Oops. There's just a picture inside the, uh, inside the lunar module, very crowded. Uh, there's a picture. This is a great picture. Michael Collins took this picture from the command module, and it shows the ascent stage uh, with Neil and Buzz in it uh, as they're rendezvousing. And Michael Collins said that he took a picture of all of humanity. Because if you look at it, there's his friends, Neil and Buzz, and look in the background, there's the rest of humanity on Earth. And he called this the there they are picture, because there they are. Um, so, and he said, Michael Collins said the best side of his life was his friends coming up to join him um, at uh, Toronto and Doc with him back in, in, in lunar orbit. When they got close to Earth, 
they separated the capsule from the service module on the back of the capsule had the heat shield because the uh, spacecraft was coming in at 25,000 miles an hour. And is there any air in outer space? Any air? So when you're whizzing along in outer space, you can live it, there's no problem, it's, there's no friction with the air. But when you're coming back in through the atmosphere and you start encountering the air molecules, what happens? Things heat up. Things heat up because of the friction. And the best example I can give is, uh, and I don't recommend anybody do this, but if you're going down I-95 and you stick your hand out the window, what do you feel? What do you feel going by your hand? Air, the wind, air. Now, if you, if you could step on the accelerator and accelerate to 25,000 miles an hour, what's going to happen to your hand? That all, that, all that wind going by so fast it's going to cause friction and burn your hand up. Well, that's why we have to protect the spacecraft from the, what we call the heat of reentry because it's going so fast and starts encountering those air molecules of our atmosphere. So the bottom of the uh, command module had a heat shield that uh, um, protected the astronauts inside. They came back in. Um, the capsule had three huge parachutes that they used, and, and the capsule splashed down in the Pacific Ocean, and we had an aircraft carrier that picked up the astronauts. So let's watch a little bit of this. Um, definitely a little bit different than a shuttle landing that we're used to seeing. And there's the capsule. You notice bobbing around quite a bit. All the astronauts said it was a wonderful spacecraft, but a lousy boat. But it did, <laughs> but it did the job. It did the job. So we're, we're going to watch the astronauts come out of the helicopter and look very carefully. And let's see, let's see the astronauts when they come out of the helicopter. The prisoner contamination. The astronauts put on airtight special garments before coming aboard the rescue ship. They transferred directly from the helicopter to a mobile quarantine van in which they would be flown back to the manned spacecraft center in Houston, Texas. Let's talk about that for a minute. Anybody ever see a science fiction movie where there's some kind of alien germ that comes back to Earth and destroys humanity? Well, guess what we were worried about back in 1969? We were worried that we're going to an alien world, um, and we were worried about them bringing back new germs. So they put on the after they splashed in, they put on these special biological isolation garments and went into quarantine, literally uh, cut off from humanity for about 21 days. And we monitor that doctors monitor their health to make sure they didn't develop moon germs or, or an alien illness that we didn't have any, uh, you know, uh, inoculations against or preventative measures against. Um, couldn't see their family, couldn't their families, that sort of thing. So guess what? And when we go to Mars, guess what we're going to do? What's going to happen to the first people coming back from Mars? They're probably going to have to go into medical quarantine as well, too. Yes. But thankfully, there weren't any moon germs. Um, and uh, after 21 days, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin were able to uh, uh, join us, uh, join the rest of, of humanity. There is a, uh, on the front landing here of the lunar module Eagle that's still there today, there was a plaque that was, or there is a plaque that was affixed between the rungs of the ladder. Um, and Neil and Buzz unveiled the plaque, and Neil read from it uh, that day during the moonwalk. Uh, the plaque showed the two hemispheres of Earth, and underneath were written some, um, some, some eloquently simple but astoundingly powerful words that uh, kind of summarized what that moment was all about. Uh, it said, Here men from the planet Earth first set foot upon the moon, July 1969 AD. We came in peace for all mankind. And that plaque is still there on the Sea of Tranquility affixed to the, the front la landing gear leg of uh, the lunar module Eagle. We always wonder when the next eyes, you know, will be there to, uh, to read that plaque again. The United States sent six missions to land on the moon. Uh, there were only 12 men who could stand on the earth 
look up to the sky and say that they have walked on the surface of the moon. I call it the world's most unique fraternity. Um, unfortunately, um, that number is dwindling down. Uh, with Neil Armstrong's passing last year, uh, we have eight moon walkers who are still uh, with us. And unfortunately, uh, as the near years go by, that number will, uh, will be decreasing uh, since most of the, all our moon walkers are in their 80s now. Next time you're outside and look at the moon, um, see if you can find, and I didn't bring the moon map with me, but it's called the Sea of Tranquility, where Armstrong and Aldrin landed. Uh, and remember that the footsteps that they set there some 44 years ago are still to this day exactly like they were. Um, remember what an extraordinary technological accomplishment it was for our country in a very short period of time to accomplish this, uh, this incredible mission. Um, man was meant to explore, and the Apollo program really represented exploration at its greatest. Uh, and the wonderful thing about the Apollo program was that was kind of different from other missions of, of exploration and discovery was that humanity truly shared in the experience through TV. We were right there watching and listening to Neil Armstrong as he became the first man to walk on the moon. And so that separates the Apollo voyages of exploration from some of the other voyages of exploration in that all of humanity really could take part in it and, and, uh, and follow along as, as it happened. Um, so real quickly, I wanted to talk about kind of uh, what we're doing with NASA in our future here. Uh, all, everybody knows we stopped uh, flying the space shuttle, uh, and the space shuttles are in museums now across the country on display. Um, and like I said, a lot of people are in the impression that NASA shut down, but that couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, the space shuttle was a wonderful vehicle. One of the, the, one of the great things we did was use the space shuttle to construct the International Space Station which is orbiting the Earth even as we speak, larger than a football field. There are six uh, research uh, astronauts up there now, uh, international uh, researchers doing uh, research uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week on the International Space Station. Since, um, since we stopped flying the space shuttles, we have no way of getting our astronauts back and forth to the space station. So, uh, right now we're relying on the, the Russians to take our astronauts back and forth to the station. So, one of the programs that we are working on now is called the Commercial Crew Program. And the whole idea of this program is to have a rocket and a capsule to provide that taxi service to take our astronauts back and forth to the International Space Station. So that's one of the things uh, that we're working on. We're hoping, hope, hoping in, uh, excuse me, in 2017 to have the first launch of the Commercial Crew Program, which will be taking our astronauts back and forth to the International Space Station. Um, the other two programs that we're working on, one is called the Launch Services Program. Let's see, we'll skip ahead a little bit. The Launch Services Program. The Launch Services Program uh, launches all of our satellites, our unmanned satellites, uh, into space. Uh, and there's a, uh, a, a, quite a calendar of missions uh, using our, our, uh, our, what we call the Launch Services Program to launch our satellites into space. And the, the third program that we're working on is called the Space Launch System Program, uh, which uh, uh, features the Orion Crew Capsule. This is the new vehicle that NASA is working on to take us beyond Earth orbit. The space shuttle was a great vehicle, but it wasn't designed to go beyond Earth orbit. And now the real mission of NASA is start, starting to start uh, exploring the solar system. And to do that, we needed, we needed a new rocket, a new powerful rocket, and a new vehicle which would let us do that. 
So that is the push of NASA right now, is to go beyond Earth orbit and start literally uh, exploring the solar system. And to do that, uh, we're going back to a capsule design, uh, kind of like a, a larger Apollo capsule design. Apollo held three astronauts. The Orion initially will hold uh, four astronauts. Um, one of the early missions uh, conceived for the, uh, the uh, Orion capsule um, will be to rendezvous with an asteroid. And the astronauts would get out, take samples of the asteroid, and bring it back to Earth for study. Um, so, what we're working on is the capsule, and then this big, massive rocket, which kind of looks like a Saturn V. Actually, it's going to be bigger than a Saturn V and more powerful. That's called the SLS rocket, and we're going to test fly that in 2017 on an unmanned mission. And then hopefully in 2021, maybe sooner, uh, we are going to launch the first manned flight beyond Earth orbit using the SLS rocket. It'll have two big solid rocket boosters like the space shuttle, and then this big liquid core stage. And then the capsule and the astronauts will be uh, in the, the, the Orion capsule will uh, house the, uh, the astronauts on top. And there's a, a size comparison. Here's the Saturn V, the space shuttle, and the new launch, uh, the new rocket that we're working on, the SLS. So it will actually be more powerful than the Saturn V. And so here's some concepts about the asteroid mission. Um, we would actually have uh, a, uh, a satellite capture an asteroid uh, and then bring it close to Earth, bring it close to the Earth-Moon system, and then we would launch our astronauts uh, in, the, uh, in the Orion capsule to rendezvous with the asteroid, and then the astronauts would uh, uh, conduct uh, some spacewalks and uh, take samples uh, of the asteroid uh, and bring those back to Earth. Um, that's one of the missions that's planned. But eventually, what we want to do is head to Mars. That's really our goal in the future, uh, is to, uh, to look to Mars. Now, we may use the moon as a stopping point along the way uh, as part of our planning, and then, uh, uh, and then head out to Mars. Um, remember we talked, it, it, it took three days to get to the moon. Well, on a good day right now, to get to Mars, it takes about six months. So uh, it's an awfully long way to commit to sending humans that far away from Earth. So it's going to be a huge challenge for us to send uh, humans that far away on, on a mission. That, uh, but that is uh, currently what we're, uh, what we're aiming for. Is, uh, like I said, go beyond Earth orbit and start, uh, start to explore the, uh, the, the solar system. 500 years ago, Ponce de Leon's voyage of exploration brought him to the eastern shores of Florida, including the Cape Canaveral area. His voyage served to expand our horizons, and, or expand his, the, the horizons uh, of man back then and, uh, and increase their knowledge of the world. Uh, his mission uh, involved a, a dangerous journey uh, across uh, an immense ocean filled with uh, many hazards and unknowns. And how very fitting it was that, that uh, um, from those very shores that he explored, that mankind embarked on other great journeys of exploration and discovery. And those voyages served to expand our horizons, uh, increase not only our knowledge of our world, but also of the universe itself. And, and like Ponce de Leon's, those ships sailed across a vast ocean, the ocean of space on a dangerous and, and hazardous mission. So as, as Floridians and Americans, 
we can, we can look back on, uh, we can look forward to, we can be very proud of and, and celebrate um, our rich heritage as we will continue to embark on these voyages of exploration and discovery to expand our horizons and increase our knowledge uh, of the world uh, and of the universe. So viva Florida. When you were talking about Apollo 1, it, it's real obvious that there was a lot of risk involved and, and we think of it just with the early days of the space program. Would you say that the amount of risk that, that we accept is similar from Apollo to shuttle and to future missions? Do you think it's similar between the, those three eras of NASA space flight? Yeah, I, I think you know. I think everybody who works in this, this space business knows that it's going to be risky. And I would be lying to everybody today. I, I sat through the Challenger disaster and the Columbia disaster. And I'd be lying to everybody in this room if I said we would never have another accident in outer space. Um, it is very dangerous, um, first of all, launching something into space. There's millions of gallons of fuel, and you're going from zero miles an hour to 25 times the speed of sound in about eight minutes. That, that will always be dangerous, no matter what. And then also hurling back in through the atmosphere 25,000 miles an hour or so with the 3,000 degrees heat of reentry is always going to be uh, extremely dangerous and um, we just do we're humans and we just do the best we can to make it as, as safe as, as possible um, so it will it will always be risky and um, like I said we, we, we you know when you look back on the accidents it, it's it's kind of the um, uh, going back to the Apollo 1 accident uh, they, they were just doing this pad test uh, this countdown practice test and it was considered non-hazardous the vehicle wasn't fueled uh, and, and the safety people weren't even on station. They didn't even have fire rescue on station in that. Just because it, we, we'd done this test before and everybody get, just got complacent over it. And that's kind of what hurts us sometimes is uh, uh, not necessarily the most complex things, but sometimes the things that, uh, you, you know, we, we get complacent about, un, un, unfortunately, in that that, that that hurt us. So, But it will always, always be, be risky in that. We just try our best to mitigate the risk as, as much as possible.